This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Dave Nottig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. I am continuing my parade of ETF experts to recap 2021 and look ahead to 2022. Last week, you heard from CFRA's Todd Rosenbluth. Next week, you'll hear from Morningstar's Ben Johnson. This week, you get to hear from the ETF Jedi Master himself, and I've got to say, I'm always very interested in Dave's ETF predictions in particular. So we'll see what he has uh, in store for us there. We'll also touch on a few other topics as well, including Ritholtz Wealth Management partnering with Wisdom Tree ETFs to create a crypto index. People aren't just waiting around for a Bitcoin ETF, which could obviously take a while. So the industry's figuring out how to innovate around the regulators. And I think this is a perfect example of that. So Dave and I will uh, chat about that as well. I'll then be joined by Shana Sissel, Chief Market Strategist at Strategic Wealth Partners. Shana is simply a fantastic market resource. Uh, you'll see her on CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business. She also knows ETFs inside and out. And we're going to have a conversation around the current market environment. We saw that big CPI number last Friday. Inflation's clearly a concern right now. Uh, COVID and the Omicron variant are still causing some worries. But you look, the S&P 500's right around record highs, despite all of the headlines. Now, if you look under the uh, surface, things have broken down a bit. There's definitely been some carnage in uh, certain areas of the markets. I think you can look at the uh, ARK ETFs to see that, or, or meme stocks. So we'll dive into how Shane is viewing all this, and we'll also discuss how she's using ETFs right now. And then to close this week, 
I'll be joined by Bob Minter, Director of Investment Strategy at Aberdeen Standard Investments. I'm looking forward to this because commodity ETFs have received a lot of attention this year, I think primarily because of the concerns around inflation. And Aberdeen offers eight ETFs covering broad commodities, industrial metals, and precious metals. So I feel like there's a lot we can unpack here as it relates to inflation and the economy and how that's impacting commodities. I'm also very interested in hearing Bob's thoughts on why gold has acted so oddly this year. I think a lot of people would have expected gold to be up because of inflation. Uh, So we'll dig into that as well. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's kick things off with ETF Trends. Dave Nodding. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, great having you back on the podcast. I feel like it's been a little while. It has. It has. I, I actually took a vacation for the first time in, I don't know, 25 years. Well, did you come back <laughs> relaxed? I did. I did. I came back relaxed, but apparently the market didn't. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is true. Okay, look, before we talk ETFs, and I actually want to talk a little markets as well with you, I have to ask you, explain F1 racing to me. I saw your tweets on <laughs> Sunday, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not a, uh, a, a huge NASCAR or r- racing guy. I just never got into that for whatever reason. But based on my Twitter feed on Sunday, I, I now feel like I'm missing out on something. So explain the allure of F1 to me. Well, now the allure of F1 is that it's largely a reality television show run by Netflix, uh, which, which you know, t- is is actually kind of true. They kind of changed. The reason everybody blew up is they sort of changed the rules with about five minutes to go to set up a really exciting race to the finish. But it kind of was just made up on the spot. There was no place in the rule book you could point. It would it would be a little bit like if you were watching the Super Bowl and you know you're going into overtime and they said you know what, actually, we're just going to have a running race and we'll just decide who wins the Super Bowl based on that because that'll be more entertaining. Like, it was a bananas rewrite of the sport. But, uh, you know, it's made for television. It, it literally is made for television and it's incredibly exciting to watch. Is this something you've been into for a while? Oh, yeah. Uh, we got My son got hooked on this about five years ago. Um, and then right after that, the first uh, Netflix Drive to Survive series came on, and my wife and I watched that, and we got hooked. All right. Do you consider these drivers athletes, or are, are they just very skilled operators? Oh, no, they're incredible athletes. Like, they lose something like 15 pounds of water over the course of a race. I mean, they, it, it is a, they, they, all they do is physical training. All right. If it's you want to get some, uh, some Twitter interaction, put out there that you believe these are the world's finest athletes. And I guarantee you'll have some engagement oh, there. No, I don't post a bear like that on social media. <laughs> All right. So as you heard at the top, uh, I'm winding down the year with a parade of ETF nerds on the podcast. Uh, and there's no doubt the parade's not complete without you. So let's start with your key ETF takeaways from 2021. If you had to pick, say, your top, I, I don't know, two or three ETF stories this year, what would they be? 
Well, you know, you covered a lot of these last year, and I don't want everybody to hear the same thing over, over and over again. Um, you know, the launch of BITO, the first Bitcoin futures ETF, I think that has to be seen as a, a phase shift type event in the industry, kind of like the launch of the first fixed income products you know, 20 years ago, um, or the first active products. I, I think that has to be seen as the milestone that it is. Um, you know, the DFA conversions, I think, were a huge story. I think you guys covered those as well. Um, you know, I, I think that that's got to be it. But like the end of the day, I think the story of the year just simply has to be the flows, right? We're going to close this year with over 800 billion in flows. Who knows? It's two weeks. It could be over 900 billion in flows. We're probably not going to hit that magic trillion dollar number. Um, but in the face of the kind of volatility and uncertainty that we have seen this year, I mean, think back to January and the GameStop madness, right? I mean, this has been something of a year. And yet the ETF vehicle has just ridden high, delivered for investors over and over again, whether you wanted cheap, low cost beta exposure to tips products or you wanted to take the highest flying meme stock insanity in the world. ETFs were there sucking in all the money. I think that's well said. I think it's tough to go with anything other than the outsized flows we've seen this year. One thing that I do think is interesting there is, you know, so far we still have a few weeks left here. There's been nearly 500 new ETFs come to market covering every nook and cranny uh, <laughs> of the financial markets. But you look at where the flows have gone, and it really has been that cheap, low-cost beta. Uh, you look at what Vanguard's done this year. They've had record flows for a single issuer. iShares, you go down the list, and even though there are these shiny objects out there, certainly Bido fits that category. The flows have really gone into the, the cheapest, most core building blocks of a portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, if you look down the list, I think we've got 20 ETFs that pulled in over $10 billion this year, which is an astonishing fact. Um, and if you look down that top 10, I think it's pretty inarguable. Like the most interesting funds on it are like either the Qs or maybe like the Vanguard Value ETF, uh, you know, with BTV or maybe FTSE developed markets like that's slightly left of center, you know, off center. But it's like compared to you know, the incredible amount of press we saw uh, around funds that, you know, we're, we're doing, you know, much wackier stuff, going into space, chasing electric cars. We talked a lot about those this year. But boy, you look down those top 20 asset gatherers and it's, you know, SPY and VU and BND and, you know, tickers we've been talking about since, you know, I was a teenager at this point. Yeah, just vacuuming up investor cash. Has there been anything particularly surprising to you in ETFs this year, whether it's something that happened or something that didn't happen? I, you know, I genuinely thought we'd get a Bitcoin ETF, not to beat a dead horse. I mean, your audience must just be, they all got to be so sick of listening to this. <laughs> they stuff. are. But like, I genuinely thought we would get it this year. I thought it would be late this year. Um, we had a real phase shift in the regulatory stance that happened, what was that, maybe June-ish when Gensler sort of started really changing his tune. Um, and, and at that point, I think the writing was on the wall. I, I think you said it last week, Nate, like, you know, you're predicting like a 2030 approval at this point. I just don't know how you can have any optimism around it until there's a more clear regulatory framework in place. And the one thing that I'll really give the SEC and Gensler credit for as it pertains to the Bitcoin futures ETFs, they were crystal clear in their messaging. They basically told issuers, here's what you have to do, and then we'll approve it. And, and they did just that. 
obviously we haven't seen any messaging along those lines out of the SEC at this point. They keep talking about how crypto is the Wild West. There's no regulatory oversight of crypto exchanges. You and I have talked about this before. I just yeah. I feel like until we see different messaging there, there's no way to have optimism around a spot Bitcoin ETF. In, in the time that it's going to take to get that regulatory framework in place, that's not something that happens overnight. Yeah, and I actually don't think we're going to see it from the ETF side of the street, meaning I don't think that we're going to see the next shoe dropping because Grayscale, you know, files their lawsuit or, you know, uh, you know, Bitwise files their fund paperwork exactly the right way. I don't think that's what moves the needle. I think the next thing that happens is stable coins get regulate, regulated as 40 Act funds uh, because fundamentally that's how they're structured. And that's where all the discussion moves to. And we all talk about, OK, well, what is Tether? Where does it live? How does it how do we use it? Um, I mean, we have countries now adopting stable coins as their fiat currency effectively. And Myanmar just did that, I think, today. Uh, and so there's no question in my mind that that's where we're going to see the regulatory activity. And that actually could theoretically backdoor us into ETFs, right? I mean, if, if we end up with this pronouncement that uh, all stable coins are in, in effect funds, then we have to come up with, well, what's the trading mechanisms around that? That starts looking very much like an ETF. And I think we end up back at square one. All right, before we get to your predictions, give me your favorite new ETF this year. I know you love all of your uh, ETF children equally, but but if you had to pick one, what would you go with? Oh, I'm going to split my vote and you're going to hate me for it. Uh, my real answer is probably vote, um, the engine number one, Transform 500 ETF. Uh, it, you know, not because this is going to move the needle and everybody's going to put their money in here and everybody's going to make a ton of you know, money in a retirement account. What they're trying to do at Vote, I think, is so interesting, which is to take activism and put it effectively in this sort of index strategy uh, and use the, the mouthpiece of being a vocal ETF to actually make changes at the board level. I, I you know, and, and their success they had with Exxon, I think it's inspiring. I really think that what they're doing is interesting. Um, but in the spirit of fair play, I also love the Roundhill Ball Metaverse ETF meta. Uh, I, I just love that space. I love thinking about it, talking about it. I think that uh, I think that what Roundhill's done there is exactly the right way to cover that space. I tend to be really skeptical of a lot of thematic ETFs because it can be so hard to get it right. That's one I think is going to get it right. I would love to know whether or not Facebook approached Roundhill on the meta ticker. There's got to be a good backstory there. <laughs> uh, yeah, in a couple of years, we're going to get a great dinner there. I, I've got to tell you, it's so funny that you picked Vote because I was thinking about this as well. And I know people would probably expect for me to say my favorite launch of, of, of this year was a Bido. But based on airtime. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know what? I'm not going to pick that simply because I think the SEC should approve a spot Bitcoin ETF. So I guess I'm bitter. I would actually go with vote as well. And that'll probably surprise some people as well, because I think most people know I'm an, uh, an ESG skeptic. But I agree. You know, I, I like that vote is trying to proactively um, change things by engaging with companies and taking that activist approach. It's well, also extremely low cost, right? I mean, you look, it's five basis points. And I think, you know, Dave, I mean, my biggest challenge with ESG, I mean, there, I have several, but I just see so much hypocrisy here uh, where people, they want to exclude, say, Amazon from their holdings. And then guess what? They're they're Amazon Prime members, right? And they use the yeah, service yeah, every day. I so I, I just I, like I, that engine number one's trying to change things. Yeah. And but here's the thing, you know, I think it may have been five or even maybe longer, Nate, at this point, I, I, you and I had a conversation about uh, about stewardship 
And I made a comment on this show where I said, I think in five or 10 years, people are going to choose their S&P 500 index based on how it votes. And I didn't predict this product. I actually still think we may head to that world where people choose between Vanguard and State Street and BlackRock based on what their stated voting policies are. This is really, you know, I think the front end of that movement. And I don't think I'm wrong. I think in another couple of years, we are really going to be making those choices. Well, we always talk about, no, we always talk about how investors vote with their dollars. And you look at this product, it launched, I think, back in uh, the the back half of uh, June. It's already taken in close to 300 million, which given what it holds and how competitive that space is around just large cap exposure, that's highly impressive to me, and especially for a new issuer. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get to your predictions. And I, I know you're not a big fan of trying to predict the future. I'm the same way. You, you know, I always say my crystal ball is broken, but you do cover the ETF space as closely as anyone. So g- give me at least a couple of ETF predictions for next year. Uh, sure. So, you know, uh, from a flows and sort of what's hot when we look back next year, um, you guys talked a little bit about, uh, you know, potential flows into the active space and thematics. Um, I think you may have even undersold it a little bit. Um, I actually think next year is going to be a just a boomer year for active management. Um, I, it's not just capital group coming in. It's not just DFA converting more funds. I, and it's not just the raft of RAAs that are queued up to launch you know, one-off products that are really bespoke for their clients. All of those three things are true. And at the same time, the existing active management product that's out there, whether it's ARC or T. Rowe Price or American Century, that stuff's getting traction. It's doing quite well. A lot of it's putting up decent numbers. Uh, I think you're going to see next year really be the year of active management. Um, now, wh- what does that mean in terms of flows? With something like, what, 7 to 10% of flows so far this year, with 15 plus percent of flows next year, um, I think that would be a huge number. Um, and that's probably where I'd put that target, something more like uh, you know, 12 15%. Um, that, so that's the reaction to that. That's my first prediction. I only have one more. Yeah, the only question I have there is, you know, there's been a lot of talk around the uh, sort of the core explorer portfolio approach where the core is comprised of your low cost, again, cheap beta, the building blocks of a portfolio. And then what investors are doing is, is looking for that spice on the edges, something like ARC or, or thematic ETFs. So the question that I have is, do you think traditional active managers coming in with, I'm not going to say they're all closet indexing strategies, but something more along those lines where maybe they don't have the highest active share, do you think they can find an audience even in the ETF wrapper? I do. And, and, and we've had some examples this year that not in terms of like, you know, oh, my gosh, the best, biggest asset gathering years ever, but like solid performance, solid products being sold correctly and then gaining a lot of assets. Like that's what you want in the world, right? That's people finding the right tools for what they want. I look at things like, I don't know, J.P. Morgan's JEPI, their equity income product or uh, Invesco's GTO. Like those, those are very traditional active management products. JEPI is an equity income product. GTOs are traditional sort of go anywhere bond fund. Both just had great years and they pulled in good assets. They're, they're well understood. These are not brand new flashy products. And these are not core and explore products. These are core products. So I, I, my pushback just there would be, I think some of these core products are really going to have their moment. Of course, they'll always be the shiny objects. And I think most of those shiny objects are going to be thematic or actively managed. Well, and whether it was BYOA or not, the top ETF launch of 2021 came from Nuveen. And that yeah. product has, what, $3.5 billion in it. Yeah. And, and I, you know, all this, you know, we always sort of feel like, I feel like we're asterixing success when we say, well, but, you know, they brought that, ass- those brought those assets internally. You know, you know, 
dog still hunts, right? <laughs> yeah, it all counts the same, right? <laughs> right. Money is still money, right? So like if, if their strategy is to wait, come in late, do a BYO and then, uh, you know, flood the zone, I, I'm not going to tell them that's the wrong strategy. All right. And then give me your second prediction. Uh, yeah, so this is a broad bucket. SMAs for everyone is what I'm calling it. So, um, look, in, in the last 15 months, every major direct indexing provider got bought by an asset manager. Every single one of them. <laughs> and I know this is an ETF show, but, like, you know, you and I have been talking about direct indexing for about five years or so. And I first brought it up on stage. And we've kicked around, like, all of these acquisitions over the last year and a half. But there's nobody left standing, right? I mean, the period is gone. Everybody's gone at this point. Um, that's going to, I think you're going to see that pay dividends next year. Uh, you're going to start seeing that roll out to more advisors. You're going to see the minimum start coming way down. I suspect we'll see Schwab's direct indexing platform um, hit sort of a, a real mass affluent target level, maybe with something like a $100,000 minimum type thing. Um, whether that goes into advisors, I don't know. But I think you're going to see this idea of, hey, everybody can get a direct index. Everybody can get a, you know, an SMA, whatever we're going to call it. Um, I think that's going to continue to be a big story next year. I think you'll see marketing dollars thrown at that the way marketing dollars have gotten thrown at other big trends in the ETF space. And then the flip side of that is, and I think you want to talk about this as well, you know, the deal that we just saw put together with Ritholtz Wealth Management, OnRamp, Gemini, and WisdomTree to effectively create a direct indexing model for pure crypto exposure, that's a thin end of the wedge there too, right? So we're going to start seeing this idea of mass separately managed accounts for a purpose, I think, permeate most of what we talk about here in the ETF space. You mentioned throwing marketing dollars out at this. How do you think some of the largest uh, current ETF issuers will straddle that line in marketing the, this SMA or direct indexing approach? I mean, I think about somebody like DFA or Vanguard or iShares, who, you know, they're, they're clearly iShares and Vanguard clearly are, have hung their hat on ETFs. DFA is ramping up that ETF business. But how do they market this? Is like another tool in the toolbox? Or do you think they go all in is the longer term solution? Does that make sense? Uh, no, I, th I, I think it will be measured, right? So when, when you see Vanguard start pushing their direct indexing product, you know, initially that's going to be, I mean, it has been at very high account minimums, really targeted sort of to the Vanguard wealth advisor. Um, I think you'll see the same thing out of BlackRock when they sort of finally finish the Aperio integration, right? I think those will be positioned as high-end solutions for their better advisor relationships as a way of effectively saying, hey, you're going to be a Vanguard advisor now. You're going to be a BlackRock advisor because we're going to give you access to this tool for your very best clients. Um, and, and I think that's appropriate, right? You look at things like what's actually, if you talk to any advisors who are using um, OSAM's Canvas platform, for instance, no advisors throwing all of their clients on Canvas. They're picking the clients where it makes sense, where they've got real tax issues they need to manage, um, where there's a clear case for it. They'll use that. When there isn't, they're just going to stick to ETFs. So this is not a case where this is the ETF killer that usurps the whole industry. This is a tool that's going to really help advisors create just in, like absolutely an impeachable relationships with their very best clients. And all of the issuers are going to jockey to be the provider. Regarding the news from uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management, and again, so for listeners, they partnered with Wisdom Tree to create a crypto index, and there are some other 
uh, interesting partnerships here as well. So on-ramp invest will be the interface that uh, allows advisors to invest in this. The actual crypto assets themselves will be custodied with Gemini. That's where the trades will be made. I thought this was a, a pretty big deal, and it, this fits in perfectly with this uh, this discussion around SMAs and direct indexing. I've always thought of OnRamp as uh, sort of a direct indexing platform for crypto. I, I think they're way ahead of the game here. And then to see an RIA like Ritholtz partner with an ETF issuer on uh, creating an index, I think that's highly interesting. Do, do you want to offer any additional thoughts here? I, I just thought this was yeah, a really I, unique I, partnership all the way around. I, I think that... Um you know, look, I've, I've kept half a foot in the crypto space this year, uh, like I think most of us have, um, you know, just enough to become a bit of an armchair expert on, on what's going on. What I see is actually the ETF industry and the indexing part of it in particular really getting smart very quickly. So you look at what Wisdom Tree's done, just, just go read the stuff they've been publishing on digital assets. It's some of the best stuff being written on it. Go read the, the stuff behind the Round Hill Metaverse ETF and the stuff that Matt Ball has written there. It's the best work that's being done there. Um, if you go to Van Eck, like Van Eck's digital asset stuff has gone through the roof. Like they're doing some really great foundational work of not just thinking about this from a sort of crypto maximalist perspective, but thinking about this from a we're in the asset management business. What does this mean? How does this work? Um, I, I'm very bullish on the sort of the mashing up of the expertise on the ETF side of the sheet and the crypto side of the sheet. And I think we're going to see more and more of it next year. I love it. Okay, just a couple minutes left. Um, I, I mentioned the market, so I'll be joined here in just a moment by uh, Shana Sissel to talk financial markets. And then later, uh, Aberdeen's Bob Minner will join me as well. And I expect that to be a, a market-focused discussion, just with inflation being such a hot-button topic. And Aberdeen, of course, offers a lineup of commodity ETFs. But I, I do always love hearing your perspective on the markets. And you know, that'll factor into the type of year ETFs have next year as well, right? Just in terms of flows and launches and those sorts of things. So as you look at, I, I guess let's just take stocks right now. So we have record highs in the major indexes. Uh, S&P 500 is up something like, what, 25, 30% this year. Yeah, but, big year. Big yeah, year. yeah. But we have started, year today. But, yeah. but we are starting to see, I, I guess what I would call deterioration beneath the surface. I, I mentioned at the top looking at something like ARK ETFs. You could say the same for, for meme stocks. Just high level, what do you make of the stock market right now? Uh, so I think we are trapped between barbell uh, fear and greed. Uh, I, I would put it more in a FOMO versus ONO oh category. Uh, like when I talk to financial advisors, they recognize that they basically need to keep their clients fully invested. There, there, there are no alternatives for them, right? You don't get to play safety in this market because your returns will literally be nothing. And with higher inflation, I think that that is no longer a tenable position. An advisor cannot take their client to cash right now because being in cash means losing 5% a year. Like that's, that's the conversation with your client. That's a bad conversation. There aren't great alternatives. Just rolling all that money into tips isn't a great alternative. Um, and so what we see is advisors and investors who are thinking long-term hunting for ways to manage risk, generate a little bit of income and stay fully invested that's why we've seen the rise of all the pattern molding ETFs, the defined outcome stuff, products like Newsy that are throwing off coupon income, Jeppy, like all of that success this year 
makes sense in that environment. None of that's changed. The only thing that's changed going into 22 is that now we understand that inflation is going to be with us for a little bit longer. I'm not interested in transitory or non-transitory. It, it is what it is, right? As Dan Egan always says, the glass is the glass. What you decide to do about that is up to you. Um, and, and then we, you know, we, we look towards valuations next year. Yeah, things look frothy, but again, what are you going to do? The worst of the frost seems to have come off. Things like, I mean, ARC is down 25% this year. Uh, cannabis is down 30% this year. Uh, you know, China is down 45% this year. I mean, you know, these are pretty dramatic sell-offs. So we've had a correction, but we've had a very targeted correction. What I think is fascinating about th- this entire environment, when you, when you think about inflation, is that there is a large chunk of investors and advisors who have never had to deal with this in their careers or in their investing experience. And this will be the first time that they've really had to, to look inflation in the face. And we have we still have historically low interest rates and figure out how they're going to solve that riddle. To, to your point, you can look at stocks and say, yeah, they're, they're on the higher end valuation wise. But but where do you go? Are you really going to go into to, to bonds right now with, with the specter of inflation out there? So that this this whole Rubik's Cube is going to be fascinating to watch to see if anybody can solve that next year. But uh, Dave, always fun connecting. Th- think about this. Next time we chat, it'll be 2022. I feel like we're supposed to have flying cars and that sort of stuff now. <laughs> Bananas. I honestly never thought we'd get through the year. So congratulations and happy holidays. <laughs> hey, you too. Thank you for joining me. That was Dave Nottig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. This week's podcast is sponsored by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. We believe we're on the cusp of a shift in sustainability that could match the scale of the Industrial Revolution and the speed of the Digital Revolution. The Goldman Sachs Future ETFs are designed to help investors position their portfolios on the right side of disruption. Visit gsam.com ETFs to learn more. My next guest is Shana Sissel, Chief Market Strategist at Strategic Wealth Partners. Shana is simply a tremendous all-around resource on the financial markets and ETFs. She's an expert on alternative investments, which we'll discuss. You'll find her regularly appearing on places like CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox Business. She's also a member of Women in ETFs, and she's now on the line with me from Chicago. Shana, a pleasure to finally connect. Thank you for joining me. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's so funny because I feel like we've crossed paths multiple times on on Twitter. So I do feel like I know you at least a little bit, but we've never actually connected before, uh, whether in person or via phone like we are now. So I'm really looking forward to this. And I I guess on that note, since you haven't been on the podcast before, let's start with some quick background. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your career path, your current role at uh, Strategic Wealth. Sure. Uh, I don't know if we have enough time to go through the entire, uh, (laughs) like, background history of of who I am. But um, long story short, um, I'm originally from the Boston area. I grew up in the city of Worcester, Massachusetts. I um, 
had no interest in getting into the financial industry whatsoever when uh, I kind of fell into it accidentally. I was working as a account manager for a staffing agency, and we were trying to place financial advisors for Morgan Stanley without success. So I went in for an undercover interview, got offered the job, and that's how I ended up in finance. Um, I don't have the most traditional uh career path in uh in in this industry I, I started in sales on the sales desk at fidelity investments and then moved laterally um you know throughout my career in the hopes of getting into a more analytical uh role uh, kind of ended up in uh, the media by accident i i I'm one of those people who uh, kind of likes to spotlight, and I'm, I'm not embarrassed to tell people that. I liked being the star of the school play. I I, I enjoyed, uh, you know, I took dance lessons, and I enjoyed being the soloist at recitals. Uh, I did pageants uh, growing up uh, in high school, and so uh, media seemed like a natural way for me to kind of progress in my career, and I happen to be working for a small RAA in the Waltham, Massachusetts area um, that was doing press uh, in the during the financial crisis. And that's how I, I sort of started getting media opportunities. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I, I really am focused on the alternative side. I, I got involved in that world uh, in 2007 before everything blew up. And it it was really a fascinating time to be exposed to hedge funds and alternative investments. It's also when the 40 Act changed that allowed for sort of the proliferation of alternative 40 Act funds that uh, uh, hopefully we can chat about a little bit today. Um, and, you know, I ended up at Strategic Wealth Partners uh, about a month and a half, two months ago. Um, and, uh, in this role, I'm responsible for sort of being a public face of the firm, doing uh, media. I, I have my own podcast for the firm um, with a colleague, Haley, called Fearless on Wall Street that we just launched. Um, and I am responsible for going out and speaking at conferences, traveling, and meeting with clients and, and advise, potential advisors that might want to join the firm and, and Ended up here just through mutual uh, connections uh, in media. Uh, Mark Tepper, the CEO of the firm, is uh, somebody who's on Fox Business, CNBC, uh, as well. And so we've crossed paths. And so when the opportunity arose to, to join the firm, that's how I ended up there. Well, that's a great background, and I've got to say you're doing a fantastic job on the media side because I do feel like I see you everywhere. <laughs> so let, let's do this. Let's start with ETFs. I, I want to talk a little bit about how you're using those, and then we can pivot and talk financial markets. Certainly no shortage of topics there. So first, just to be clear, Strategic Wealth is currently using ETFs in portfolios, correct? Absolutely. We, we run uh, a few proprietary U.S. equity um, stock portfolios for our clients where we select individual securities, but we use ETFs uh, to complement those portfolios and international equities, uh, fixed income, and for smaller accounts as well to give them uh, exposure to equities. And just from an investment philosophy approach, would you describe it as more strategic or, or tactical, or, or is it both depending upon the, the type of portfolio that's put together for the client? 
I'd say it's more strategic um, in terms of how we use ETFs. It's for constant exposure. Um, I think the goal and the hope is that um, bringing me on board will help uh, develop, you know, maybe some more tactical ideas in the alternative space, uh, either through ETFs or through, um, you know, other vehicles. But but it's, it's mostly strategic, just ways to get exposure to markets where we don't consider ourselves experts. Okay, so... I'd love to have you talk just a little bit more about your ETF due diligence process, because as I know you're well aware, there are what you know, somewhere near 2,800 ETFs on the market covering every corner of, of the financial markets. What does your process look like here? Like, do you get real granular with exposure? Do you stay broader based? And then what are you looking for in an ETF? We are definitely broader based. And because our usage of ETF is really to complement our equity portfolios, it, it's 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 about liquidity availability um, and in just the, the broad spectrum of of the exposure, uh, we tend to deal with um, the larger providers, the state streets, the iShares, and the like. Uh, we worry about fees, uh, so that's part of the the conversation. And we don't do a ton of work in the active ETF space. So the granularity of the due diligence is not as important from that respect. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's a particularly complicated due diligence process. Uh, you know, comparatively speaking, I spend the bulk of my time doing you know really granular due diligence on other types of vehicles. Um, ETFs are sort of I don't want to say the easy button. Of, of the group, but uh, it's certainly an area where we feel very comfortable using the larger providers to get broad exposures at a low cost. Well, well let's talk markets, and perhaps ETFs will be threaded through some of this discussion as well. And I, I wanted to start by asking you about the big news last week, which was the inflation number. So the November CPI came in hot, right, 6.8%, highest number since 1982. I'm curious, how concerned are you about inflation right now? And is it shaping your portfolio de uh, decisions? I wouldn't say it's necessarily shaping our portfolio decisions uh, any differently than it has been to this point. I mean, inflation has been a concern, and I, I don't think it's actually going to get any better, uh, especially now. Uh, you're hearing um, from overseas, especially in Europe, some sort of dramatic changes to policy having to do with the rise of the Omicron vir uh, variant uh, and concerns about continued spread of COVID. A lot of the inflation that we're seeing is a result of policy decisions is impact on uh, you know economic on the economy so you know lockdowns limitations on um, how many people can be in a space um, this continued fear of covid is just impacting people wanting to return to work and so you have lack of uh lack of employees and lack of um assistance in areas that are impacted inflation rates you know we've talked ad nauseum about like shipping supply chain disruptions that is a result of in many ways of covid related policy decisions um impacting um you know the ability for 
workers, for companies to get workers to work at ports, to get at different parts of the supply chain. And it's beyond just the United States. So I, I really don't foresee inflation improving anytime soon as as long as we continue to have um, public health and policy decisions that are going to impact uh, the uh, the ability for the global economy to function uh, normally. So from a portfolio application standpoint, I'm not sure if you caught the uh, tail end of my conversation with ETF Trends, Dave Nodding. We, we were talking a little bit about this. I think it's a huge challenge for investors and advisors. And I think this really gets down the path towards one of your areas of expertise, which is alternative investments. And the, the way that I would lay this out is one of the big themes on this podcast all year long has been the death of the 60-40 portfolio, which I'm not sure I entirely buy into that. We can talk about that if you want. But I'm curious as to your view on fixed income in a portfolio, especially if we are in a more sustained inflationary environment. Do you think this is where alternatives might come into play? I've always felt uh, that alternatives have a place in the portfolio and it doesn't necessarily have to come out of equity or or fixed income. It kind of comes out of both. And uh, and we can discuss more, if you'd like, about sort of how I see that. But I I, I think to answer your question, it's not overly uh, important. Uh, I do think that alternatives make sense as a uh, another option outside of fixed income. Fixed, the fixed income markets are behavior has been very difficult to understand. You would think with rising inflation rates, you'd see corresponding yields increasing. Um, but I think that the Federal Reserve here in the United States is uh, reluctant to increase rates anytime soon. Yes, they're going to accelerate the tapering. All that means is they're buying less of um, securities out in the open market. It doesn't necessarily impact rates per se, um, but it's just very hard to understand some of the technical dynamics in the fixed income markets for a lot of people. Uh, and, and so alternatives are a great way to diversify your portfolio, to reduce the overall risk, which I think a lot of the risk in portfolios right now actually does come from fixed income. I agree. Because of inflation, because of uh, the uncertainty of the rate environment. So what are the types of strategies that you might consider in that alternative sleeve? I mean, are we talking commodity strategies, absolute return strategies? Could we go somewhere like crypto? What, what, what do you view as that alternative investment bucket? What's in that? All of the above. Uh, you can also do equity market neuter- neutral strategies. You can look at something like... Um, it's, there's merger arbitrage strategies, there's commodity strategies, um, future strategies. There are several firms that just offer uh, full suites of alternative ETFs like AGF IQ and um, Index IQ. Uh, those are two firms that offer only alternative ETFs. Um, over the years, I, I have... Um, I've used a, an ETF called BTOL. I don't know if I necessarily think it's one I would want now, um, as it tends to be uh, a, a strong performer when low beta is doing well, and that just hasn't been the case, so the, the fund hasn't done that well. Uh, BTOL is a AGFIQ equity market neutral anti-beta fund, so it goes long, low beta stocks, and short 
high beta stocks. But they have a whole suite of relative values, um, long, short, market neutral funds. And Index IQ has uh, similar types of hedge fund replication strategies that are in ETF form. So um, First Trust is another firm that has some great um, alternative ETFs. And so the options are out there. Uh, I think a lot of people look at them and think they're expensive, comparatively speaking. You know, you're talking about 40, 50 basis points expense ratio versus a traditional SPX or an iShare at 10 or less basis points. Uh, but the cost of execution for some of these strategies is is part of the reason why they're more expensive. I think everybody sort of understands that shorting or um, buying derivatives uh, is more expensive than just going along a stock. Uh, so you have to sort of take that into consideration. They're certainly cheaper than their mutual fund counterparts or their private fund counterparts, and they do offer the diversification benefits that you can't necessarily get in other way in other um, uh, long only more traditional exposures. And they absolutely can help mitigate risk associated with um, fixed income right now. Do you have any strong views on uh, Bitcoin and crypto? Because I feel like. Some have suggested crypto could actually be a fixed income replacement. Again, I'm not sure I subscribe to that, though I'm open to hearing the argument. But what do you think about crypto in a portfolio? Well, I'm bullish on crypto. I'm not bullish on the current crypto ETF offerings um, or closed-end fund offerings. Um, And as a yield alternative, uh, if you're looking for an alternative to, to fixed income and you want to get some yield, you really can't get any exposure to it unless you're an accredited, accredited investor. Um, so, you know, there's some limitations there. I also think that crypto is the ultimate risk on asset. So if you think of fixed income as sort of a risk um, hedge, and I think most people, if you think about the traditional 60-40, you always think more fixed income as you get closer to retirement because you want to have that stability and you want to reduce your risk. So if you're thinking about fixed income in that respect, I don't know if crypto is the natural way to replace fixed income. It's a high volatility asset class. It is very much a risk on asset class. So while it offers diversification benefits in a portfolio, I'm not sure it's a alternative to fixed income and and uh, helping to manage or mitigate risk in a portfolio. Yeah, and to your point, we've seen that risk on or risk off here lately across crypto. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, just about two minutes left. What I want to do is go rapid fire through just a, a few different topics. So think about 30 seconds on each of these these questions. I'll just tee them up and you can offer a few quick thoughts. I want to start with market cap weighted indexes. Um, as you know, right now you look, the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 represent something like 30% of the index. Uh, it's even greater if you look at the NASDAQ 100. Does that top heaviness concern you at all? It does, uh, because it's only a handful of stocks that are driving returns, uh, which is typically not healthy. Uh, Having um, broad uh, uh, 
dispersion of returns is a positive thing. So having concentration risk is never good. And small caps historically over time outperform large caps. They're the only asset class that outperforms inflation um, over the last five decades. So uh, it's concerning. All right. Give me the one thing that keeps you up right now uh, about the markets. Um, The uncertainty related to the continued um, impact of the pandemic. Okay, that's good. Uh, What's the one thing that has you most optimistic about the markets moving forward? That they've been resilient through this extraordinarily difficult time and that the uh, innovation and the growth opportunity remains and uh, it continues to be attractive. All right. And last, uh, we're going to close with a little football. So um, it's my understanding that you're a New England Patriots fan. Is that correct? I am. My grandfather was an original season ticket holder. I am not a bandwagon fan. I was a (laughs) fan my whole life. And for most of my life, they were awful. As a matter of fact, they won the first Super Bowl after I graduated from college. So I just feel like I need to hedge uh, the fact that I'm a Patriots fan to the fact that I spent most of my life cheering for a team that was awful. Are you still a uh, Tom Brady fan? I, I am I'm neutral to Tom Brady. I've met him a couple times and he's he's actually kind of a socially awkward guy and so um, I don't have the love affair a lot of people have for him. Um, I, I would say I'm a much bigger fan of Bill Belichick um, because who he is in real life versus who he presents himself. Uh, in the media are two very different things, and he's actually quite likable. All right, so my question is this. I'm here in Kansas City. Of course, we've had some recent epic battles with the Patriots, and I do think we could see another Chiefs-Patriots AFC title game. Are you picking the Patriots for the Super Bowl this year? I am not picking them for the Super Bowl, but I do think there's some eerie similarities between this year's team and that 2001 team that beat the Rams. Uh, Remember, uh, that Tampa Bay game, defending uh, champs, uh, Super Bowl champs, uh, New England lost, just like they lost to the Rams in that 2001 season. Um, but it was a moral victory in a lot of ways. And since that game, yes, they lost to the Cowboys immediately after. That was another like very strong showing. They have been on a tear. And they have a young quarterback, just like Tom Brady was two years in. We have a rookie. It's a young team. Um, but I think there's some eerie similarities. So while they're not my pick for the Super Bowl, I do expect them to go far in the playoffs. Well, and I'll just say it's very difficult to bet against Belichick. Uh, the guy's just amazing. But Shana, a pleasure connecting. Really enjoyed hearing your perspective on the markets and ETFs this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. That was Shana Sissel, Chief Market Strategist at Strategic Wealth Partners. The universe of publicly traded pure play digital transformation and blockchain companies has grown significantly in both size and revenues over the last few years. Access the company's driving blockchain innovation with the Vanek Digital Transformation ETF, ticker DAPP, your link to the blockchain. Investing involves substantial risk and high volatility, including possible loss of principal. And investors should consider the fund's objective, risk, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain a prospectus, call 800-826-2333 or visit vanek.com. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing.
My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Bob Minter, Director of Investment Strategy at Aberdeen Standard Investments, who currently offers eight ETFs here in the U.S., about $6.7 billion in assets. That includes physically backed ETFs covering gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, along with several commodity basket ETFs. And Bob is now on the line with me from Philadelphia. Bob, thank you for joining me this week. Thank you for having me, Nate. All right, let's start with the broader commodity strategies, which have had a very good year performance-wise, I think primarily because of this backdrop of inflation, which we can talk about. But Aberdeen offers three ETFs here. There's the Bloomberg All Commodity Strategy K1 Free ETF, ticker symbol BCI, the Bloomberg All Commodity Longer Dated Strategy K1 Free ETF, BCD, and then the Bloomberg Industrial Metal Strategy K1 Free ETF, BCIM. That actually just launched in September. Let's start with the uh, two all commodity strategies first. Just walk through what these hold. And then I'm assuming the only difference between those two is the maturity of the futures, correct? That is correct. So uh, basically, they both follow the Bloomberg Commodities Index, which is a broad-based commodities uh, index. There are 23 different individual commodities in that index it's it, it's pretty diversified there are other commodity indices out there and they tend to be very heavily weighted to oil as much as 60% or so to oil and, and so our view was that you know if you want to buy an oil fund buy an oil fund if you want to get broad exposure um, you know an indice like the like the Bloomberg commodities index would be best for you so um, the difference between the two, of course, is, as you stated, the, the BCI has the front month or the second month contract, and uh, the BCD has the three- or four-month contract out. And the reason why somebody might like the three- or four-month contract rather than the front-month contract is that it, the, the price reaction tends to be less volatile, if you can imagine, you know, a cargo ship getting stuck in the canal, that's something that's temporary, or a hurricane hitting a, a, the Gulf of Mexico and shutting down some oil wells, that's sort of a temporary uh, disruption. And so you would expect to see more of a price change so in all, BCI than BCD in the case like that. Yeah, and all on this note, so I mentioned performance. BCI is up something like 25% year-to-date. BCD is up a little bit more than that. I, I'm curious, what have been some of the primary drivers here? Has this been primarily inflation-driven? Uh, of course, we saw the big CPI print last Friday. I mean, has that been the primary catalyst, or are there other catalysts here? I think there are other catalysts. Uh, you know, inflation is a really hot topic this year, and, you know, everybody knows this, how, what, what the returns on lumber are. That's actually a, considered a minor commodity. It's not even in this index. So, uh, unless you're a carpenter, you probably really don't care about the price of, of lumber. But um, one of the one of the big contributors this year was natural gas, and um, which which is up about just under eighty percent year to date. And so uh, that puts it, even though it's a diversified index, and you get a number like eighty percent, and it makes a pretty good contribution to the to the returns. Um, it, it contributes about nine percent of the of the 25 percent uh, into into bci and ironically the natural gas story is really a wind and water story so there was a drought in the u.s and south america and europe 
in China, in the Nordic countries, all of which lowered hydroelectric uh, production. And so those countries had to rely more on natural gas for energy, uh, for electricity production. And so it created a, a real shortage due to the jump in demand. What about the infrastructure package? Do you see that as a driver here as well? We do, and that was one of the main drivers of, of launching the BCIM, the Bloomberg Commodity Industrial Metals uh, ETF here, because the industrial metals are copper, aluminum, uh, nickel, and zinc. And so copper is is basically in everything electric. And so when we look at uh, how much copper is in an electric vehicle, it's 200 pounds versus a gasoline vehicle of about 50 pounds. And when you think about things like wind turbines and, and, and such, a one megawatt solar panel has almost five tons of copper in it. A three megawatt wind turbine has 4.7 tons of copper in it. And so you, when you start doing these these uh, massive tra- energy transitions, it's, it's impossible not to uh, have a, an uptick in copper demand. And uh, aluminum, of course, is, is used to make things lighter, and so it's becoming a bigger and bigger component of electric vehicles. Zinc is used to galvanize steel and make it last longer, so it's actually used to galvanize the steel for wind turbines and solar panel supports and bridges and tunnels and airport construction, guardrails on roads, and et cetera. And nickel is used in batteries. And right now, battery use is a low single-digit percent of nickel demand, but by 2030, it could be up to 30% of nickel demand, and the nickel market would need to be 60% bigger. So rather than focus on rare earths, which can be engineered out of the battery technology, these are really fundamental building blocks of the energy transition. Well, and what I find interesting there, you're really speaking to the uh, demand side of the equation. I've actually read regarding the supply side that some of these same forces in terms of the world attempting to transition away from fossil fuels is impacting supply just because of things like capping output from uh, copper mines and aluminum mines or imposing, you know, rather significant taxes on the mining production. That that's actually stunting the supply side a little bit. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Sure, that's it's actually a very good point. You know, it, in commodity markets, companies have, for example, sweet spots of the mine. So during a period of low prices, they'll go to the sweet spot of the mine where they can get the material uh, faster and cheaper and kind of continue to make profits and pay their employees to live to fight another day. And so a lot of those sweet spots are have been mined. And the sweet spots are not just in mines, but as far as uh, countries to, to to pull the materials out of the ground. So a lot of the more favorable countries um, have been mined. And some of the countries are actually shifting. Places like uh, Peru and Chile uh, have, have sort of seen price increases as an opportunity to kind of cash a lottery ticket in. And um, they're trying to, to raise taxes rather dramatically. Um, you always ask for more than what you want, so they won't get the you know, I think in one case it was 80% tax, but so they won't get that. But the point is that the taxes uh, are, are, are they're looking at increasing the taxes. And so maybe some shifts to less attractive countries like um, the Republic of Congo or, or something like that uh, could occur. And you'd need better returns 
for, for that higher risk of, of operating a country like that. And again, that new ETF is the Industrial Metal Strategy ETF, ticker BCIM. Um, Bob, with the remaining time, I, I want to move on and talk precious metals because this is just such a, uh, a fascinating area to me. And I, I look, your most popular ETF is the Aberdeen Standard Physical Gold Shares ETF, ticker SGOL, nearly $2.5 billion in assets. Also at a very low uh, price point, I, I should mention 17 basis points uh, on the fee. But we, we were just talking inflation. I'm, I'm curious, why hasn't gold reacted better? You, you look at the performance. I mean, the ETF is down over like 5% year to date. And especially given that interest rates have stayed low, I think many investors would have expected gold to perform much better in this environment. What, what do you think is going on here? So I think there really are two things. One is uh, crypto competition. Uh, the crypto market is um, uh, it is just so hot uh, right now. And we started this year, I, I, I had so many emails on the first business day of this year. All, everybody must have talked about the same thing over Christmas break last year, um, and that was crypto. And uh, so I had a lot of emails on it. And we, we, we came out of the gate pretty strong that we need to be very wary of regulation because the how do you put all these regulations on the money market on the money markets and have no regulation or almost no regulation on stable coins and it seems like it's a real uh, a hole in the regulation and this SEC chairman does not look like uh, someone who's going to let things go un- unregulated um, and so we're going to carry that theme into next year and look for uh, some increase in regulation on crypto. The second part of the story that that has hurt gold performance is actually people forget that there's a pretty large retail base of consumers in gold, and those are focused mainly in India and China. And so there they they serve a function of a, a traditional gift during a, a festival or or wedding, and. We all know uh, there have been less weddings and, and less festivals over the last year or so, and uh, that looks to increase. I, I guess even in the U.S., they say the, the uh, 2022 might be the largest wedding year in a number of years. So uh, we already are seeing the data come in that uh, it, both India and China are importing larger quantities of gold and silver Um in the last several months. So uh, sort of in preparation for that wedding and festival season at the end of the year. Bob, I'm always a huge proponent of thinking much longer term on uh, on any investment. But I do think because of gold's recent performance and how it's reacted this year, there are some investors questioning uh, its role in a portfolio. How, how do you like to describe the role of gold in, in a portfolio? So if you are uncomfortable with the $28 trillion on the Fed's uh, uh, $28 trillion of U.S. debt, the $8 trillion on the almost $9 trillion now, I guess, on the Fed's balance sheet, there's $8 trillion on the ECB's balance sheet, the tremendous increase in debt in the world. If you are uncomfortable with that, um, gold might have a, a role in, it, in the portfolio for you. If you put a few percent in, uh, I guess traditionally people look at 5% plus or minus. Um, if that helps you to remain risk-facing in the rest of your portfolio, it's done its job. 
And um, so uh, I, I don't like the term insurance policy. I think that sends the wrong message. But um, if you're uncomfortable with uh, a lot of the extreme uh, financial market reactions in the last several years, uh, it does pay to, to, to be diversified and um, to be able to sleep at night. On a related topic, before I let you go, I have to quickly ask you about uh, glitter, because this has one of my favorite ETF ticker symbols that, that's out there, GLTR. I, I just love that. But this is the Aberdeen Standard Physical Precious Metals Basket Shares ETF. This holds gold, silver, platinum, palladium. And I, I should reiterate that in addition to the uh, the gold ETF, SUOL, that we discussed, Aberdeen does offer physically backed ETFs covering each of those individual metals as well, right? Silver, palladium, and platinum. But glitter holds them all. How do you see that fitting in a portfolio? Is that sort of a, a more diversified gold play? It is because platinum, palladium, and silver all have industrial uses and gold does not. So, um, for example, pl- uh, platinum is used in the pollution control devices in your car. And we all know what has happened to automobile availability in the last year due to the lack of semiconductor chips. And we're just starting to see uh, some some um, some bright signs there as far as auto production. GM, I think, just went to mandatory overtime and it opened all of their production plants back up. So it does look like it's getting better um, automobile availability-wise. And there's a real restocking there. Some people say there's as many as 10 million missing autos uh, from from the lack of production. So we think that, that Platinum could participate in that restocking of automobiles. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm talking about palladium. Palladium is used in, in uh, gasoline-powered uh, vehicles. Platinum is used in diesel-powered, but it's also used in hydrogen. And China's spending a tremendous amount of money on hydrogen technology. And they're basically following the same uh, formulas they did for solar technology. In terms and, of the... Uh, go, go ahead. And so platinum is used as a... Um, used in the fuel cells, hydrogen-powered fuel cells. And so a lot of people think that hydrogen will be the future of uh, renewable energy, particularly with cars and, and large trucks and, and such. So, um, so by putting these together in a basket, you you have upside to some of the future themes as well as uh, a traditional monetary asset goal. I, I was just going to ask, in terms of the weighting, last I, I checked, gold was somewhere around 60%, silver 25%, palladium uh, like, like 10 to 15%, and platinum 5%. Does that still sound about right? It does. Okay. Well, Bob, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Just an excellent overview of the commodity space. Really appreciate the time. And thank you for joining me this week. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. That was Bob Minter, Director of Investment Strategy at Aberdeen Standard Investments. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I will continue recapping the year in both ETFs in the financial markets and also looking ahead to 2022. I have two tremendous guests. I'll be joined by Morningstar's Ben Johnson and Toroso's Michael Gayed. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>